Hello, and welcome to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation, brought to you by Hirespace. This episode, Jonathan Stock, Head of Marketing and Events at Portland, is in the studio to talk to us about his time as a special advisor at Number 10 Downing Street and about getting the best return on your marketing events investment. After that, Bernadette Palumbo, founder of Salon Events, joins me to discuss her new book, The Events Professionals Journal. But first, reacting to the coronavirus situation as events professionals, large trade shows, diversity and sustainability. All that and more as Kit Watts, Jonathan Stock and Edward Poland sit down for the News Digest. Evening, everyone. Good evening. Hello. How are you doing? Good, thank you. So we've got Kit Watts, Strategic Communications Director of IMEX. Indeed. Nice to be here. Lovely to have you. Thank you. And we have Jonathan Stock, Head of Marketing and Events for Portland Communications. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, Jonathan. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Yeah, good. Well, we've got a, a, a fascinating interview with Jonathan coming up later on the podcast, so I, I'm not going to let Jonathan divulge too much now. Um, Kit, mm. IMEX coming up soon. It's great to have not too you. too soon, fortunately. What's the It's April, <laughs> isn't it? It's May. Yeah, three months from where we are now. Three months away. Getting busy. Sometimes we can have a nice, um, slightly um, misrepresentative January because a lot of us are on the road. There's a sort of calm in the office, which is a, an untruth because then February hits and suddenly it's, oh, heavens, everything's happening, like registration goes live. And all the plans that we talked about suddenly have to become real. Jonathan's smiling. He knows that feeling. And um, and then I have the way I describe it in the offices, it's like an, it's an unstoppable train. It's coming, whether you like it or not. Like an election. And you, oh, yeah, and you always want more time and you never have it. For any of our listeners who haven't been to IMEX or, or, or don't know so much about it, t- tell us quickly what, what IMEX is and what it's all about. Um, well, it's the, the leading, leading trade show globally for the global industry of the meetings and events industry. So um, we, we used to not say we were leading, um, and you may want to edit this bit out. We're very humble. <laughs> but, by, but by size, scope, and probably quality, we are now, in all honesty. So we have two shows. We have one in IMEX in Frankfurt, which is coming up in a year or so for its 20th anniversary, and one in, uh, in Las Vegas, IMEX America, coming up for its 10th birthday this October. And um, people have described it as the sort of the Google on steroids of the meetings and events industry. It's where anyone who's anyone with business to do in that global space comes together to meet, do business, network, have their own meetings, have their own co-located events and really um, just be part of the conversation. Great to have you here. And we really, really would like to talk about global trade shows. We kick off talking about Mobile World Con- Congress, mm-hmm. which obviously was, was cancelled in light of the coronavirus. We spoke a little bit about, about the coronavirus on the Event Lab podcast last time. Um, I mean, Kit, you're, you're, you're putting on a, 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 an event of a, of a similar scale in not so distant future. How have the team at IMEX taken, taken what happened with Mobile World Congress? It was something of a tipping point. We were obviously very aware of the story. We were in uh, contact with all of our partners. And when I say story, I'm not trying to belittle this. Obviously, you know, human lives, people have have lost their lives. So this is a significant health issue. Um, And certainly the cancellation of Mobile World Congress, we knew it was going to cause an issue in our industry. It would be there would be a point of difference in the way that the media were covering it. From our own experience, we have uh, lived through and run shows through bird flu, bird flu, <laughs> SARS, um, 
volcanic eruptions, strikes, protests. So in terms of an event that's really well prepared, either around crisis comms or the crisis contingency plans that you need to have in place, we are really robust. The conversation currently in the office is about let's stick to the facts. There is so much speculation. It's hard to know what to believe and what not. So that's I think that's the issue for many businesses currently, whether you're in events or not, whether you touch on the travel industry or not, or whether you have a duty of care, which you do towards your staff. What's true, what's not? And it's changing every day. I mean, you've still got a decision to make? Yeah. I, I mean, it, we're three months out as we sit here now. So currently we've said there are no significant impacts on the show and the way we're going. We, we intend to run the show. And that's true at this point in time. But it would be stupid for me to say, oh, yes, of course, it's all going to go ahead regardless because this looks like a very fluid situation. So we're in contact with... Um, you know, all of our partners globally, including partners in Asia. We are partnered with people like PCMA, ECA, MPI, big bodies all the way around the world. So um, UFI is a great resource currently for our industry. So I think, and we ha- we're we kind of touching base as a leadership team every day. But currently, the news, um, the news media, and even our own trade press, the way they, they're handling the story and the way it's coming out is not the material reality we're experiencing. I think it's a reminder to every event professional to be diligent about your situational planning in terms of, you know, this is a very extreme set of circumstances that are completely beyond your control, uh, but you shouldn't be treating it any differently from the the slightly more sort of likely elements of your risk assessment. And I think what you touched on is kind of, you know, remaining pragmatic, being in place with all your communications should you need to make that drastic decision, which doesn't just apply to a health sort of a health issue globally but it could it could be a local issue to frankfurt that might impact your your event and and you would be in the same position where you'd have to manage suppliers you'd have to manage customers you'd have to manage delegates Uh, and i think you know it doesn't matter the scale of your event it doesn't matter the location of it when it's something as as global as this you know it's, it's, it's a reminder to be kind of as diligent and as thorough as you can be while you have the time to be and then being in a position to make a go no go decision Yeah, I mean, we've put ourselves through crisis training on purpose in the past because we didn't want to be in the situation where we weren't prepared. It's too much of a risk. We're not not prepared to put any of our attendees through that. It's our it's our duty not to. Um, But we're also an organisation. You know, we're privately owned. We have really good leadership and people in who genuinely care about the industry. So I guess in some in some respects, we're able to make agile decisions and we can spend our money on things like that, knowing that it could be speculative and never called upon. So social media, digital age, there's so much misinformation around all the time. I guess that's that's your biggest challenge. I guess hmm. you must see the same thing. Yeah, I, I suppose the, there's so many sources of news now. People digest information in so many more ways than perhaps before when calling the event organiser would have been the most authoritative way to find out whether an event was running. Whereas now people, you look at the way that terrorist incidents in central London have been reported and the way people have learned about that and have changed their behaviour accordingly without necessarily knowing the full facts. Or um, you know, And this is a much larger scale in many respects, multi, multiple languages, multiple, um, you know, multiple nations and stakeholders involved in that way. But yes, I think, you know, it's intrinsic on event planners to be clear in the message they're sending uh, to be diverting people as attention towards the sources of information that you can provide and trying to encourage people to use that sort of responsibly I suppose. 
we'd love to talk about the visitor experience and and what attendees expect from a big trade show these days because it seems in, in 20 years the way in which people consume information and are inspired and uh, in all, all walks of life certainly certainly in venues and events has, has really really changed in the last 20 years so does that does that affect the expectations of, of delegates coming to something like IMEX? Hugely. I mean, in the early days, in Frankfurt, this is we're talking about, not about not in America. We were like a living marketplace. That's what trade shows traditionally are: a living pop-up marketplace for business. Uh, you know, based on a, a model that's a thousand years old, where you get a load of people who buyers and sellers in one space, and you let them get on with it. And we still see that today in farmers markets and what have you. Originally, that was the model. Over the years, that has changed and evolved hugely. And in particular, I would say even in the last perhaps four or five years. And I don't know whether. That that's because of social media and the world is so much more curated and we've we've latched on to experience. I think there is a strong connection there to social media in changing the experience mm. that people want to have at a business event. <clears throat> we started to get to the point where we were adding education. Initially, we thought we were not going to run any edu- any education at all. We were worried it was going to cut across people's ability to do business. And then you start to talk to the marketplace and you realise once you have a sort of certain value of trust with your clients they want you to give more which is with the the sponsors and the exhibitors yeah yeah so we started to deliver some education and then that began to snowball and then we were because we are there to serve the industry and really genuinely want the the industry to grow healthily and we want to support the people in it um we began to hear that they wanted more so we started to offer more and that was about curating more of an experience so bringing in much more uh, more activations that, that are around trends or around event tech or around food and beverage um, so all of these things have kind of added to the pot over the years so even the tag trade show is a tricky one for mm. me now I think it's you know yeah. traditionally they kind of feel like a commodity exchange back to this old business model but it is a much much richer experience now so in many ways it's it's more than the sum of its parts and our job is to curate it and deliver it in a way that you as a consumer can get what you need out of it you know ultimately it's about kind of hyper personalization but that's really tough to deliver but that's what we're seeking to do i guess mindsets just get kind of entrenched don't they when going to an event year after year and you know for event lab which is three years old we, we content first event and people come for the content and the education and our our challenge is 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 getting everyone to interact with the exhibitors and sponsors that's our job i imagine for for you it's kind of the opposite they're so used to coming to so used to coming to meet people and and see see exhibitors it's just a completely different mindset thing isn't it changing that i guess takes time i think the other thing is that and i don't mean to sort of undermine your market share but there's more competition now and going back to what you were saying about social media it's much more easy to go and experience something and share it and then that in itself you know there's more competition in the market for you know i'm looking at two event organizers (laughs) not quite you know different differing scales but at the same time there's more events for um, for buyers like me to go to and actually finding them that stand out, finding a way to make your brand stand out as part of it. You know, the, the days of a, of a framed exhibition hall are well and truly over. I'd like to talk about sustainability. Now, IMEX, I know, do a huge amount of, of positive things on, on sustainability, both in terms of the events that you put on and the thought leadership element that you bring to it. But, you know, at the end of the day, when, you, when you're putting on a big global event where you have people flying in, from all over the world to attend how much is how much of a challenge is it to make sure you're always staying ahead of the game 
Um, it's a it's a constant challenge. However, uh, we're we're committed. We care. So we like to say we bleed green. Mm. It's a bit nasty, isn't it? But um, it, it's been part of our DNA ever since we launched the first show. Um, and in fact, credit to a, a PR guy who's now passed away, Chris Martins, who uh, we still talk about in the business because Chris made us sit down in the early days. And he said, you know, I, he didn't say I can see the future, but now we remember how Chris was able to see 20 to 15, 10, 15, 20 years ahead. And he said, you know, green meetings, as we used to call them, they're going to be big um, and various other things, uh, the the use of art and technology. He saw it all. And um I think he knew in in talking to us about it, we were we were a company that would res, we would respond. So from the early days, um, and the second year of the show, we've made an effort to to minimise our environmental impact wherever we can. But over the years, we've learned a lot of lessons. How about do you? How to I do mean, that. on trades goes trade shows of any size, wastage of uh, MDF carpet. All of those resources that go into making those eye-catching exhibition stands, lots of which is sort of semi-disposable or temporary. What what obligations do you put on your suppliers in order to meet your expectations and your culture about that? Because that's something that I know has been talked about a lot, but actually the industry still hasn't really moved. You know, there's still miles of wasted carpet that's sitting in skips outside exhibition spaces of any trade show, you know, not just for the events, events industry. I can give you the name of a great carpet supplier. We use recycled and recyclable carpet. So, and that's an obligation you put on your suppliers. That's an, no, on, that, on that, your, that's something we deliver. No, we deliver that ourselves. So every 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 piece of carpet that goes into our show is specified by us to be recycled and recyclable. Um, and we have a huge waste diversion program. But again, we've had to build that up mm. over the years. So in the US, we have ninety three percent. Uh, waste diversion, which means that only 7% of waste, that's food and beverage, um, stand materials, all of that, there's only 7% that goes to landfill. In Germany, it's different. They don't have landfill. <laughs> they have incinerators. But in Germany, I think the stats for this year are about 97, 98%. It's taken a long time. You have mm. to have a great supply chain. You have to have people on board. Often it's dependent on one or two champions, i.e. individuals in your supply chain who get it and who care. But the key thing is, you probably know, is if if sustainability is important, then your choice of venue and your choice of location Mm. is key. Um, And then it goes all the way down the line to particularly food and beverage. We're we're hugely wasteful, generally, in the events industry. Um, We we over-order food, we serve up too much food, and once it goes out of the kitchen... It's it, it, it's living food and you cannot dispose of it. So we work with local community groups so that we can actually um, put that food into community p- programs. It's not as easy as it looks. It, it's a whole job in itself. But it's if you're living on purpose and your business, ha- you know, have has values as we do, you have to live your values. Mm. But you also have to accept that sometimes it goes wrong. And we have, you know, we've had days when. Um, for instance, in Vegas, when we when we introduced the re- reusable coffee cup, okay, bring your own cup, and then we had masses of meetings with our suppliers in all of the the franchise coffee shops to say, anyone wearing a badge who brings their coffee cup, we want you to fill it up. <laughs> um, and masses of briefing meetings. Anyway, the day dawns, and in fact, what we learned was, unless that briefing has reached the member of staff on the counter on that day, they're not going to fill that coffee cup up. 
do, do, do you think it's an existential threat to big global events that don't take it as seriously as you do? I think over time, because the, the demographics of people are changing, you know, younger people, um, they make different choices based on their values. And one of their values is doing less harm to the planet. So that, to me, that choice um, transmutes or, or crosses over easily from a choice around a leisure destination to am I going to go to this business event? Does it, does it align with my values? And if it doesn't, I'm going to stay away because that counts too. I wanted to touch on one other topic, which isn't kind of specifically about global trade shows. And this is something that was in the news the other day in The Guardian, and it was about how arts bodies in the UK are threatened with funding cuts because they're failing to take diversity seriously enough. And the the art sector inter, intersects with the events industry in some ways. I just wanted to ask you guys whether you thought that this issue was mirrored in events. I think that we've got some way beyond women on panels i remember that sort of three or four years ago that was what what was critical in terms of event programming um and i think even more so now and with my sort of comms hat on businesses need to learn to be communicating with the audiences that they 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 want to be that because they want to sell them something be that because they want to be engaging across communities in new ways and so in order to do that we've got to be looking at representing those communities be it on the panels you know that's a very events thing but actually across arts organizations too um and the one only the one good thing that I, i think about lots of these venues have only opened their doors because they have been struggling from funds so as an industry we've benefited from the fact that galleries arts institutions are now looking for new uh, revenue streams, which means that they're having to look at commercialising what they've got. Um, and though that's a very small blessing, because I do believe in the arts and I do believe in supporting them, um, I think we could be grateful as a community. But but that sort of being unreasonable in, in terms of challenging what they're doing based on the way that they sort of represent uh, diverse communities, I think is, is a little questionable. Mm. Well, there's a lot going on in our industry currently around diversity and inclusion, D&I, as people like to call it. Um, in some ways, it's a bit of a hot topic, although rightly so. So the way we... We have two issues at IMEX. Obviously, there's the business, there's the IMEX team, um, and there's also the shows. So we, we, we face it on two fronts. Now, within the business, we have a squad. So we have a green squad that kind of keeps us accountable and feeds all of our ideas around sustainable events and even sustainability in the office, where we even um, waste divert our coffee grounds now. Um, at the shows, it's a bigger issue um, because you're dealing with massive inf- infrastructures, venues, accessibility issues. So the venues that we work with, Mesa Frankfurt in Frankfurt and uh, the Sands Expo and Venetian Palazzo in in, um, in Las Vegas, they are very well-appointed venues. However, a lot of this... So if we're talking about issues of accessibility, if you're in a wheelchair, um, that's just one part mm. of this whole story. You you have to, again, communicate it. So it's one thing to do it, but it's another thing to communicate it to the right audiences so that they know which spaces they can access and which they can't. So it's a simple thing. Every every army, as, we, as the, the saying goes, every army marches on its stomach, food and beverage. Um, and as a result, we also need to use the toilets. Now, these, if you start to look at simple things like this in terms of a show and then ask yourself, am I making these facilities as accessible to every other person who perhaps doesn't look like me or behave like me? Your answer is staring you in the face and then you're off. Mm. So I guess if, if my advice would be to, to anybody, and it's a bit like sustainability, 
Um, start with, as Karina calls them beautifully, control the controllables. Start with what you can do, not with what you can't. And don't necessarily worry that you can't help everybody all of the time because you're setting yourself up to fail. Good advice. And we have a feature on diversity on the Event Lab podcast in two weeks' time. Um, so we'll continue the conversation then. Um, Jonathan, thank you very much for coming in. No worries. And Kit, pleasure to have you. Yeah, really nice to be here. Thank you. Come back again soon. Next up, my interview with Jonathan Stock, Head of Marketing and Events at Portland and former Special Advisor at Number 10 Downing Street. But first, we have a quick message from one of our sponsors. Today's episode of the Event Lab podcast is brought to you by Yahire. If you're looking to hire quality furniture or catering equipment for your next event, the experienced team at Yahire can help. Yahire provides a wide range of product styles available to hire for all types of events. Find out more at yahire.com. And don't forget to check our new range of bespoke made in London furniture. Yahire, award-winning furniture hire. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. No, our pleasure. Um, so I know you're here to talk to us about um, getting the best return on your marketing events. Mm-hmm. Um, but just because you've had such a fascinating career, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't pick your brain a bit about political events. Is that OK? No, that's fine. That's fine. Fantastic. So, I mean, what would you say were some of the key differences between events, uh, uh, political events and maybe more corporate events? So I started off um, when I was thinking about this beforehand, uh, thinking of all the things that are, that are different, and uh, you know the the, the volume, uh, the pace of the and the number of events that you're required mm-hmm. to deliver, how quickly you're required to move on, um, the the profile of the of political events. You, you know there there are a number of events that the event profs are, uh, are producing all over the place that have some media interaction, but yeah. you've got the national and occasionally international media chasing you around all the time. Um, occasionally yeah, with, with political ones, it's, it's every yeah, it's, it's, every time. Every time, <laughs> um, you know, there, there's very little room for disaster or even the smallest mm. mess up. Um, but in practice, I was thinking about you know, there's a lot that's the same, which is you still worry that your audience isn't going to show up. Yeah. You know, the AV provider might get stuck in traffic. Uh, a venue might have a last minute <laughs> wobble, and you end up kind of scrabbling around to find alternatives. You know, lots of those things are still. Uh, very similar. Yeah. I think the, the the big noticeable difference is the kind of intensity because of all those factors that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in corporate, hopefully you've got a bit more lead time. I think all of us kind of work on a short span when we need to, but but in practice you're kind of working around specific objectives or you're targeting specific audiences. You've got a you've got a really thorough planning phase that allows you before you then start to activate that event. Um, whereas in reality, lots of the events that we did, we we didn't even properly debrief before we were on to the next yeah. country or on to the next uh, event or engagement. And, and in practice, uh, you know, when you've got a handful of public engagements almost every day, uh, that's just the realities. Unless you had a team of 1,500 people, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you just don't get the time to do it. Yeah, I guess with a, with a lot of um, sort of standard and corporate events, um, you you have you can just sort of like look at your calendar and plan everything out. Whereas I suppose as as things are constantly changing and moving, you have to be a bit more reactive. Yes, and I think you know that's one thing I didn't didn't uh, didn't point out. The um, the reality is that the Prime Minister's diary, who I was responsible for producing events for, uh, is shifting around all the time. Often you wouldn't get kind of a, a, a full commitment uh, on the part of the diary until sort of late in the day 
say, the, yeah. the day before. Uh, you know, things would change. National events take place. There are, you know, there are horrifying terrorist incidents that, that ultimately kind of buffet programs substantially. Um, all those things are out of your control, just as yeah. with any event, you know, there could be a um, there could be a, a weather disaster that means that, that, that sort of trains and planes are cancelled before your yeah. Monday morning event. But, um, you know, in some respects, you've got ways to overcome that. There's private travel. There's other other ways around that. But but in practice, if there's no point the prime minister flying to Newcastle, as she intended to do before she made a speech um, about her relationship and the future relationship with the European Union, if there's snow forecast for that week, no one no one will be able to travel up yeah, the East yeah. Coast Main Line. You know, the prime minister's plane might be able to fly, but but in practice, if no one else can get there and the factory is going to be closed because the weather's so bad anyway, then you have to rethink it. And so two days later, she made the speech in London and, and that was what became the Mansion House speech. And would you say there are there are large differences from an audience perspective? Yes, uh, I think it's a really interesting point you make. Um, though obviously now um, events of all sizes are looking to resonate beyond the room that you've organised them in, be mm-hmm. that the XL or be that a meeting room in St. James's. Um, but... As we mentioned, the media scrutiny, a lot of the events that the prime minister undertakes are televised. Um, And when we talk about the nature of the events, she does, you know, the the, the classic ones you'll be used to seeing on the news is sort of prime minister standing in front of a backdrop in front of an audience, probably delivering some remarks. But then in order to give TV and um, print media the right kind of images and the right uh, amount of content that they need, you'd always end up arranging something on the side. And that wouldn't necessarily be an event itself. It would be a kind of stop on the way or a um, a tour around a factory where she she would engage with some apprentices or anything that kind of brought that to life because in practice um, the front pages of newspapers don't run pictures of, of Prime Minister standing at lectern in yeah. front of backdrop um, so there is that that's um, that's very different I suppose um, I heard sort of a little rumour on the grapevine that quite a lot of um, effort can sometimes be required to ensure that no one feels snubbed <laughs> uh, yeah it, it, and you I think this again this is a kind of similarity between corporate events and mm. political events perhaps the stakes are slightly higher in politics uh, you know you, you are producing an event there's always a vast amount of stakeholders be they sponsors be they partners be they the host venue uh, be they delegates or audience members um, and all of those uh, people are, those relationships are really important whether you're, you're working in corporate events management or whether you're in politics but, but the slight sort of underside of that in politics is that they're all voters as well yeah of course course um and i was always particularly acute that the relationships that you form uh when you land on the ground often at short notice and you're trying to you know uh encourage politely a factory owner (laughs) that actually the way that they've set up the room isn't quite going to work for the television and you kind of need to rearrange everything around them um it it is something that you've always got to kind of um take into account And, and ultimately uh be it an election period or not that person will at some point go into a ballot box and put a cross in a box yeah. either next to the and person you, and, who's and you just don't want to be them. the one that negatively <laughs> yeah, and, yeah and that and you know the every news outlet is looking for a different angle mm. on a particular story and you don't want this story that to, to you know a tabloid or even a broadcaster is is about how difficult we made it for the local MP, a series yeah. of councillors who are in the audience, um, someone with accessibility requirements, yeah. all of those things. You don't want that to distract away from whatever it is that the prime minister is doing or saying on that particular day, and so you you build that in um, as well, and and that's where you really start to kind of get into head explosion territory, <laughs> and and often those are all the things that you worry about mostly. 
um, in the sort of in the heat of the moment. Security has been a big focus in events, especially over the last sort of like six months. I mean, and going on and stretching back further. Can you tell us much about managing security? Obviously, there are some real sort of nuts and bolts of, of security in terms of the prime minister has a close protection team, mm. uh, which means you get a bit of infrastructure support from the police. Uh, there are obviously some sort of explicit threats around her profile in the United yeah. Kingdom and, and sort of national security considerations. Um, but at the same time, her being present at an event and, and her sort of um, particularly being advertised as attending an event can elevate the security risk to all the guests that are there. Uh, we've all seen it kind of dramatised in various ways on the television. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, thank goodness we, we never had to deal with a situation of that of that type. Um, but uh, in, in practice, you know, we're very lucky that the police do support and, and guided us in, in respect, particularly of the Prime Minister's security, but would also manage us and, and help uh, support us in situations where it wasn't safe for members of the public or for the individuals that were participating. The other end of it is a kind of reputational security, which yeah. um, which we sort of touched on. But, you know, milkshakes, hecklers, comedians, <laughs> um, it, those things would often keep you up at night uh, because in part because of the profile that, that you're working at. But, you know, it's not nice to happen at anyone's event if there's a disgruntled audience member or if there's someone there that shouldn't be. Um, and in practice, all you can do is take the same mitigating steps that you do um, with any event, which is, you know, making sure you've got robust security measures, making sure you've got people in the crowd that are able to manage a situation or an incident, if particularly if it's sort of high profile. Um, and you, you go through the same sort of risk risk assessment sort of measures as you would um, in, in any other situation, because ultimately there are still members of the public there. It doesn't matter whether the prime minister's there or not. Mm -hmm. um, and you've got to make sure that, that, that the event safety is, is a consideration within that. What was your most challenging day um, whilst uh, working at 10 Downing Street? Obviously, for, for those of you who sort of don't remember, it was in 2017, uh, the Prime Minister was making her party conference speech, mm. which is kind of like the State of the Union. You know, it's the Prime Minister speaking to the nation, guaranteed news coverage, a real opportunity to sort of set out her vision. It had been a pretty challenging sort of few months running up to that with the election result. Um, and the comedian, whose name escapes me, but he was the guy that interrupted that FIFA press conference. Mm, like, yeah. he's got a pretty pretty consistent pattern. For some reason, he had been accredited to attend the event, so he was here, He was there legitimately, not been picked up in any of the screening yeah. that had gone on, um, which was sort of uh, alarming in itself. But he then proceeded to interrupt the Prime Minister trying to present her with a P45, uh, which was the image that was then uh, on the front page. Then uh, the Prime Minister's voice gave in uh, and then following that, uh, the letters started falling down behind her. Uh, and you're smiling in a, in a sort of somewhat sympathetic yeah, way. Yeah, but, uh, sympathetic. But, but, but in, in practice, um, as an event planner, and, and I was sort of backstage when the first sort of interruption took place. And then you, you sort of, it's a reminder to us all that there's only so much you can mitigate against. Yeah. There's only so much you can plan for. And particularly in politics, it was a really sort of, a cruel realization that, that there comes a point where you have to put your principal on the stage and the same goes for a CEO or for your mm. panel or whatever. And there's only so much that's within your control from that point onwards. And on that day, we were struck down by three really unlucky sort of yeah. sets of circumstances that individually would have been pretty harrowing but it just so happened that that, that day the winds were against us 
Um, and, and in practice, I think, you know, the Conservative Party accreditation team have learned a little bit about that. I think we learned a little bit about the prime, you know, planning the Prime Minister's schedule to allow her a bit more um, sort of uh, space to be able to, to sort of manage it. And I think, uh, you know, hopefully he won't show up at another event in the future. <laughs> but, you know, good luck. Good luck to you guys if uh, he shows up at one of yours. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I'd, I'd like to move on to um, marketing events and, and getting the best return on it, because that's what you're heavily involved in now. Can I ask you about what Portland's doing at the moment to maximise the return, particularly on marketing events? Yeah. So I guess in the context of my role, I have this slightly strange responsibility where I bring my events experience in, but I'm also now responsible for our sort of marketing strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what we're what we're doing and and we've really gone about this i have been at portland now for a, for just over a year so i've seen like the year in cycle mm-hmm. um this year we've we've set about being very clear in our objectives and re being really strict and holding ourselves to account against them and yeah. i think that's got to be the kind of underlying thing you know we, we we all throw around sort of kpis that we might want it might be bums on seats or it might be the right bums on seats or it might be uh the right panel or setting the right tone for the discussion mm-hmm. um but i think you you've got to be clear about that from the start and then hold yourselves account to it and if it doesn't work be honest in in the way you debrief about it mm-hmm. to to make sure that you you're there and we're looking at managing the kind of marketing journey and i'm using yeah. air quotes for that because <laughs> it's the most jargony thing i've said since leaving i'm sure the audience there were there were physical air quotes there um but ultimately um you know there, there are te- there's technology and systems now that allow you to basically put a pound sign at every interaction mm-hmm. that someone has with your organization and what you want to be able to prove is that the pound signs which hopefully there are more and several noughts on the end of it in the business that they bring to your organization at the end has justified whatever investment you've made in that relationship earlier in the process. Yeah, and I suppose there are a a few sort of schools of thought on how it's best measured. Mm. Do you have a a preference yourself? So for me, I I have this sort of approach which is uh isn't particularly orthodox should we say <laughs> okay. uh, but but basically I, I, i've spent my time going around the business talking about sort of marketing plans for the year ahead and uh calling a spade a spade is like my favorite thing which, <laughs> which goes back to what i was just saying about um you know let's be honest about is this a lead generation exercise mm. is this about relationship building or nurturing um is this about sealing the deal further down the line and let's let's work out how many people we want to do that with what we want to achieve through this activity and then what the relevant sort of budget allocation is for it and that mm-hmm. the three things kind of then wrapped together then start to dictate how you might deliver, develop or deliver an event uh that will fulfill those things and calling a spade a spade is basically going you know what if we want to host a breakfast panel discussion in our office we need to be realistic about the fact that we're not going to get the decision makers that we really want to target in but we might get decision makers in five years time so we want to start building that relationship now let's be honest with this rather than like pulling our hairs out trying to get you know, a room full of 60 people yet actually really focus on 10 people getting in that room. Yeah. Let's just get 60 people who in time might become really helpful or real advocates for our organisation. But I guess as well, the other problem is demonstrating it to your clients. We have a, a sort of unusual pattern where we're responsible for the sort of commercial events offer that Portland offers, mm-hmm. um, as well as our own marketing events. And in terms of the value that we show to our clients in our marketing events, um we we really try and show like the Portland personality and reflect our values and our approach through what we're doing. So whether that's the type of food and drink that we're serving, the kind of format, the timings of the event. So 
you know, if we're, if we're wanting to organize something that's C-suite, when, when is the best time to reach out to, to CEOs or, or yeah. their um, C-suite colleagues? It's Potentially, it's starting a breakfast at quarter to eight rather than at eight o'clock so that they can then be in the office for nine or 9.15 rather mm. than kind of rocking up at 10.30 like other people might do after a breakfast event. Um, and for me, I spend a, an enormous amount of time thinking about the flow of an event and like the audience experience, which I think is something I brought from the work I did in politics, where we were always thinking, you know, what would the principal experience at this point? Does this route make sense? You know, yeah. So it's everything from um, making sure that they're not duplicating security and getting a name badge twice, like was a problem mm -hmm. when I arrived at Portland, uh, where people would sign in on the ground floor and then we would want to register them on the first floor. And uh, thinking things like that, that's really where we start to add value because we're thinking about that without other people having to. And I guess my last question would be, um, especially because it's something I know our listeners will be fascinated in, and do you have like an internal checklist when you're when you're looking at making a decision, investing in an event? I guess so. I think there isn't as much a checklist as much as sort of a series of objectives against our business yeah. development. And I think that essentially becomes the checklist, which is, mm -hmm. is this event or is this um, activation going to help us in achieving these sort of strategic goals for our organization? Uh, and they, they simplify really, you know, into pretty classic new business and business development objectives. But uh, ultimately, what what's good about having seen some of the marketing activity that's sort of um, routine at Portland over the last year is that I've been able to think about uh, that much more and really refine that down and kind mm -hmm. of be prepared to call colleagues out on it and yeah. challenge them on it. And, you know, if we're not being specific about a KPI that we might attach to an objective, you know, really honing in on that. And so I guess that's the checklist of sorts. Yeah. In terms of event quality, um, yeah, we have we have a, a sort of checklist itself. Um and those uh, tend to be, you know, pretty standard across the industry. Um, but but ultimately, uh, we'll be thinking about how we sort of uh, tailor that checklist to, to match the objectives that we've set as well. I wish I had more time to keep picking your brain, but we're out of time. Thank you so much for coming in, Jonathan. I hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been great fun. Thanks. Fantastic. And hopefully we'll see you again soon. Great. Thank you. Coming up next, I discuss the Events Professionals Journal with author Bernadette Palumbo. But first, a quick message from one of our sponsors. Hire Space Professional. Are you a corporate meetings and events planner with a packed calendar of events? Hire Space Professional streamlines the whole event booking process from venue supplier sourcing, standardized digital venue contracts, and even event delivery. Hire Space Professional is here to save you both valuable time and money. To discover the benefits of Hire Space Professional, email hspro at hirespace.com. And now back to the show. So Bernadette, so lovely to have you in the studio. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for inviting me in. So excited to hear a bit more about the journal that you've released. Thank you, yeah. I think, first of all, for our audience, just so they've got a sense of your, like, your background and, and where the journal's sort of come from. Could you talk us through a bit about your career and what sort of led you to, to publishing this book? Yeah, for sure. So um, I started uh, as like an admin assistant in Philips Electronics and mm. then moved up. Uh, I wanted to be in the events team, so kind of worked up to that gradually. And then... Um, absolutely loved the event industry all of the events we got to do a huge range meeting people I loved the pressure <laughs> uh, I think we get to work in a really awesome industry it is exciting oh it's epic yeah and um but unfortunately kind of the stress got a bit too much wasn't really sure how to handle that 
And then personal life as well got a bit overwhelming. So it got to a point where I actually had to make a really tough decision, which was to kind of put my well-being first, which isn't something we're ever taught to do. You know, but it's so important, and there's so much conversation around it at the moment, especially especially in our industry. I mean, I think that's the thing. Like, we love working in this industry because it is so amazing, but it shouldn't have to come with such um, high stress levels and pressures. So yeah, I so I actually ended up just having to quit my job and taking some time out, which mm. was a really, really tough decision because I loved it. Um, so then kind of started really trying to be open to improving my well-being, which included stuff like counselling, which then led me on to journaling. So um, I kind of just used my own method of journaling, just how I kind of felt I wanted to. And then from that, eventually kind of took the leapstone to start up my own event business um so that was back in 2018 mm. um and then obviously the stress of events came back a <laughs> 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 bit more actually owning your own business it was a, yeah. bit, <laughs> a bit more stressful so then I started journaling again but it was more specific to kind of the events industry and, and when you say journaling, can you go into a bit more detail what you mean, just for those who, who aren't familiar with the practice? This uh, Event Professionals Journal is guided journaling. So mm. uh, you start, you like I started before I even pick up my phone in the morning. So it asks like various questions for you to kind of answer. It takes like the same amount of time it does for your kettle to boil, for the, your, like, your morning tea and coffee. So it's not, you know, really laborious. And you just uh, fill it out. So it's completely how you want to do it. So it's it's... The questions are specific, but you can kind of tailor it to how you want. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a bit more about how the journal can help other events professionals sort of manage their schedule? Yeah, sure. So the thing about the journal is that it's it's a real perfect mix between um, personal life and work life. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't say, you know, like, what is your schedule today? What is your to-do list? Um, Instead, it's more questions and exercises around how to increase your productivity mm-hmm. so um some use of the journal already have reported about nine hours back per week with the productivity increase so it manages busy schedules by giving you a whole day back basically yeah. uh, so it's just it's kind of focusing on achievements um and really kind of being aware of how you feel so it's like a a scale it every day to mark like how happy you are how mm-hmm. tired you are how behind you are uh, and it just yeah really helps get you focused for the day yeah that'd be interesting actually can you can you sort of talk us through a, a day using the journal oh i'd love to yeah uh, it literally starts with what am i grateful for okay um yeah. so this morning it was for all the support i got yesterday for something i mm-hmm. did and then it's you know like what event did i work on the most yesterday um what was my biggest achievement? How was that achieved? And then it's one thing that excites me, what I'll do for just myself today. Uh, and then like the mood scale. Um, so I just go through that, fill it out. And I always find the most challenging thing is what I will do for just myself today. Because <laughs> it's so hard for event professionals to find even like two minutes to do something yeah, for course, themselves. Yeah, so it can be. Yeah, but like doing that, you, you actually really think about it and then you make sure that that thing happens. So mine today was to have a proper sing-along in the car <laughs> on the way up to What see song was you. it? I don't want to tell you. No, is it, you've got to tell me. Come I on. Come on. No, you do. You it absolutely... might have been a Beyonce hit. Okay, no, she's the queen. <laughs> you could have had the worst evening. You've woken up still in the foulest mood and you're dreading your schedule for the day and you then have to write what you're grateful mm-hmm. for. And there's been days where I've done it and I'm like... 
oh, like, what do I write? And it, even, like, just to say I'm grateful for having a bed to sleep in or for a yeah. house to sleep in, for, like, having a phone to be able to use and stuff, going real back to basics, it's amazing how much that can then elevate your mood yeah. and, and make you realise that actually, even though things can be bad, it's actually still all right mm. in the grand scheme of things. And, I mean, there's been days where I've got to, like, three, two, three in the afternoon and I've felt really overwhelmed and like I'm on that autopilot treadmill and then I realise I haven't completed the journal. <laughs> <laughs> so like I'm still gu- guilty of it but you really do then once you've got into the habit of doing journaling mm. you really then notice the the difference when you then don't do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well I, I think um, like sort of touching on that um, a question that I think is going to be in some event professionals heads is uh-huh. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm so busy already. Like, do I have time to do this, to do extra work doing journal? Like, what would you say to people that thought were thinking that way? Yeah, I mean, I, firstly, I completely understand why they would feel that way. Uh, and when I've kind of been posed that question, it's really simple. Like, on average, it gives you nine hours back every single week. So why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. Um, so whilst it, it may be uh, difficult to make it a daily habit to begin with, mm-hmm. it's it's just it's common sense to do um to help look after yourself i mean i created this because there was a need for it there's nothing else specific for event professionals to help look after our well-being that Mm -hmm. that people can be in control of themselves um so like i know it works people using it have reported it works the feedback has been awesome yeah um so it's just try it like you know just try it and if it doesn't work uh please tell me why (laughs) yeah well thank you so much for coming in and filling us in telling us more about the journal Um, uh, if you'd like to find out a bit more about bernadette or um about the events professionals journal there'll be a link in the show notes below that you can find later thank you thanks and that's our show this week i hope you enjoyed it the event lab series is back with the first event of 2020 taking place on the 3rd of march at atmosphere venues This event is all about collaboration in events projects, exploring the ways event planners and venues can work together. There's also plenty of time to mingle over a drink at the end. This is expected to be a packed out event, but you can still register your interest at eventlab.online forward slash attend. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher and the podcasting app of your choice. You can follow all that we do on Twitter and Instagram using the handle eventlab underscore online. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at hirespace.com. Thanks for listening.